Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Giulio Boccoletti will join us to discuss water. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show, water, fundamental aspect of our world and crucial to our survival. But how much do we really know about the history of water? Joining us today is Dr. Giulio Boccoletti, a globally recognized expert on natural resources, security, and environmental sustainability. He's an honorary research associate at the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment at the University of Oxford. He's been a research scientist at MIT and a partner at McKinsey & Company. He's an expert contributor to the World Economic Forum, and his work on water has been featured in the PBS documentary series, H2O, The Molecule That Made Us. He has penned the new book, Water, a Biography. Dr. Bogoletti, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, a fascinating book you've put together here, really detailing the history of water, a crucial part of all lives, but one that we might not think about. Why you decide to put the book together? Yes, thank you, Charles. It's it's a good question. I mean, I'm a practitioner, right? I'm a scientist by training, and then I spent the last 15 years working around the world on issues of water security for countries and advising governments and companies. And so I interfaced the issues of water for a long time from a technical and economic perspective. But the more I did so, I realized that water is truly a political issue in the end. And it's an issue that has long roots in our history. And I felt, I felt that in order to understand how to move forward, particularly now that we're facing a very significant crisis when it comes to water, we really need to become cognizant of what has happened in the past and how we got to where we are today. And so I started kind of building this narrative. And the more I dug, the more I found interesting stories. And eventually I decided it was time for me to write it all in a book. And that's how the book came about. Well, it is crucial currency by which our societies have been built from the very beginning. That's right. For the vast majority of settled human history, we have lived in agrarian societies where food and the production of cereals and crops were the primary store of value. And of course, for most of the world, that is water, right? I mean, if it's green and it grows, it requires water. And so in reality, you can almost think about food production as a mechanism through which we use water. And so it turns out that for the vast majority of our history, water has been a crucial determinant of wealth. It has been a crucial determinant, therefore, of politics and therefore of geopolitics. What's unusual about the lives that we lead now is that most of us have uh, forgotten that. Right. I mean, in a way, it's a luxury of modern society that we can afford to forget that water shapes our environment. After all, you and I leave our homes and I presume neither of us uh, has to wade a river on our way to work. That's because we've essentially designed our reality to separate us from water. That's really an anomaly of the last, not even the last century, maybe the last 80, 90 years. Before then, everybody sort of danced with water every day, every year for the whole of their lives. And so it's, water is a fundamental determinant of almost everything that happens in society. 
especially in the United States, there are parts where we wouldn't think about water as being that crucial. I mean, much of the West, though, has to deal with a lot of these water issues nowadays as it's becoming more constrained by demand. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly if you follow the news of late, it's risen up again in the sort of totem pole of issues that people talk about. And that's because particularly in the West of the United States, you know, there is a long drawn drought. It may be a shift in the underlying climatology of the region. And this is putting an enormous strain on the uh, ability of the existing infrastructure to deliver the water that people need, right? And so that has made it very salient. But I think that, you know, the focus on a shifting climate and the focus on changes in the overall supply of water shouldn't distract us from the fact that in the end, the experience that we have of water is mostly about the infrastructure and institutions that we've built. You know, remember that only 150 years ago, the West was essentially not habitable in the way that it is today. And it was thanks to billions of dollars of investment, primarily the federal government, that the West was transformed. In fact, it was completely replumbed so that people could actually live here. So what we're witnessing is a shifting climate, but is also a failure of a solution that was implemented about 100 years ago, and that now has outlived its course. I should add one thing, Charles, that you know, you said earlier, people maybe, let's say in the east of the United States, might not be as aware of water. And that's true. You know, places that have plentiful water tend to ignore it. But one of the reasons I wrote the book was to try and reveal that every place on the planet, even the water abundant ones, in fact, live and dance in a sort of dialectic relationship with water. And so, you know, one of the stories I tell in the book is the fact that even behind the U.S. Constitution, there's a process that starts with a river, with the Potomac and you know, the attempts that Washington made to create a water company, a canal company around the Potomac. So water really, kind of not try and use a pun here, but it really is on the current. It runs, it flows through all of the stories of humanity. Many of the major cities, of course, are built along rivers where that's, the infrastructure is built from that. It's true that even today, you know, the most technologically advanced society that the planet has ever seen, 90% of the people that live on this planet live within 10 miles of a water source, right, of a river or of a lake. So even in terms of the distribution of the population, rivers, even today, with a few exceptions, pretty much shape the way in which people are distributed and the way in which our value, our infrastructure, our wealth is distributed. Now, what's happened over the last 50, 60 years is that in some parts of the world, this is not true everywhere, but in some parts of the world, like the United States, particularly the rich parts of the world, we've sort of forgotten, right? We've benefited from this luxury of being able to completely forget that most of what happens around us is really shaped by moving water. And we've been able to forget because we've invested so much money in infrastructure and in mechanisms to catch, collect, and convey water where it's needed, when it's needed, and, and no more. And so indeed, it's true that we've sort of forgotten, right? But as I said, the fact that these solutions, which have been in place now for about 100 years, are starting to show failings, are starting to creak under the weight of a changing environment, means that we won't be able to ignore them any longer. Uh, and I suspect we'll be talking about water more and more as the years go by. What are the lessons from history in terms of, of our dealing with water? Well, Charles, one of the things that I realized as I was uh, researching this book, uh, which, you know, by design ended up being a very interdisciplinary project, because on the one hand, you have to understand the physics and the science to be able to kind of understand how water actually behaves on the planet. But then it's also a book that speaks of politics and history. And, and uh, as I got into the project, I realized that there are very few aspects, particularly very few institutions that are not touched 
by our relationship with water. And so, for example, you know, the seeds of our democracies, the structure of our constitutional compacts have been informed in large part by the struggles that the societies of the past have had with with water. Even our legal systems contain the DNA of very profound struggles with water. Just one example amongst many, the Magna Carta itself has a number of articles that talk about the management of water. And these are not technical issues, right? They're ultimately all about how does a society share when there isn't enough? How does a society protect the vulnerable when floods come along? How does a society survive the strength, the overwhelming strength of the water environment, which even today can overwhelm even the, the richest parts of the world? I mean, you just have to look at what happened in New York with Ida coming through, right? And so, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned looking backwards is that if you're trying to understand how vulnerable we might be to the water, you can't just look at the technical world. You can't just ask yourself engineering questions. You have to ask yourself political and institutional questions. Where will the problems arise? And often in the history of water, they arise in unexpected places. The biggest problems that arise in water, not necessarily where the biggest physical changes happen, but where the most vulnerable are, right? And so I think that looking forward now is going to be the fundamental question is where in our complicated web of economic relations and institutional relations, where are the vulnerable to water and how will they behave when something happens? Because that is the start of potential problems. That is the start of something that will change our relationship with water going forward. Where do you see those pressure points arising across the globe? Well, you know, Charles, it's interesting. The great thing about being an earth scientist by training is that you sort of see events on the planet as real live experiments from which you can learn. And so phenomena like El Nino, for example, which modify rainfall on a smaller basis than climate change would, right? But they do so periodically. Give us case studies and case examples of how physical changes to the water world then propagate through institutions. One famous example of this was around 2010-2011 when Russia and China went dry. That showed up in the commodity prices of cereal production, then propagated down to the Middle East, which is, you know, all the countries of the Middle East are large importers of wheat. That weakened the finances of the state, states that were already vulnerable for a variety of other reasons. Social rest started, and you then have the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring then leads to the collapse of the Egyptian state, and that opens up the possibility for Ethiopia to start developing a dam on the Nile. So that's a very long causal chain, and one has to be careful not to be too deterministic about it. I mean, there are lots of things going on there, but there's no question that strains from the water world then propagate through both the trade system, the economic system, the political systems to have very, very distant effects. One of the issues that I'm particularly focused on these days and I'm interested in is the fact that as We've sort of, we Westerners, so Europeans, I'm sitting here in London talking to you from the UK, or the Americans have retreated from assisting a number of countries in developing their own water infrastructure. The Chinese and Indians have stepped in. And so there is a sort of renaissance of infrastructure building in the water space across Africa, Latin America, and Asia, driven primarily by Chinese resources. And that is changing the landscape in very unexpected and significant ways. And we'll see how that plays out. But that's an important geopolitical fault line that's playing out right now in the water sector. A form of water diplomacy, if you will. 
Completely. And, you know, they learned it from America, right? I mean, the Truman administration had a famous uh, four-point strategy, was a technical assistance diplomacy, essentially. And as a result of that, you know, Charles, you'll be aware of the Tennessee Valley Authority, a famous utility in the United States. Well, there's Valley authorities pretty much all over the world because one time the United States was practicing water diplomacy. So there's a Jordan Valley Authority. There's, a, there's even a Helmand Valley Authority in Afghanistan to talk about a particularly uh, you know, prominent issue right now. Now, America stopped doing that in the 70s, but that is the sort of thing that's now happening, driven by investments in hydraulic infrastructure around the world by the Chinese. Was there anything surprising about the history of water that uh, you didn't realize going into it? One of the more interesting realizations that would lead to a very interesting thought experiment that I haven't done yet, but I, you know, this may be very well be uh, you know, a future project, is that you know, today we live in a remarkably homogeneous water environment in truth, right? Because the whole world has learned how to deal with water in a very particular way. Particularly, incidentally, the West of the United States has provided the archetype. So, you know, the, the way in which America and the United States developed their water resources in the first half of the 20th century became the modernist template for the rest of the world. And so the whole world built dams. The whole world looked at Hoover Dam and decided to build their own, right? And so wherever you go in the world, we have a single way, more or less, a single way of managing water and water infrastructure. Now, it turns out that if you look backwards, there are many strands of ways of uh, dealing with the water environment that are entirely different from, what, from where we landed. Those are branches of a tree that never reached the present, right? And, and so, for example, if you look at the forest societies of the Amazon, those that were decimated by the diseases that were brought by the Spanish when they arrived in the New World, before the Spanish conquest, they had a completely different way of dealing with the water environment. Uh, the Amazon was a domesticated landscape where the population lived within the forest in relatively urbanized settlements and managed water in an integrated fashion with the rest of its societal functions, right? So that, you know, if you had lived there, if you had looked at the landscape, it would have looked very, very different from, from the landscape that we, we know today. And that's just one example of many. So the, the variability or the diversity of approaches that societies can take to deal with water is far, far greater than what we see on the planet today. And I think that's you know, something that we, you know, we cannot see around us because, of course, we've homogenized everything. But it's, a, it's an incredibly valuable store of cultural wealth that's in the history of water. Perhaps could we look back for finding new solutions for our present problems? It is, but it's important to realize that the only way to interpret those experiences is to see them within the context of the societies that produce them, right? So it's never just about the technology. It's about the technology in the context of a particular social structure and in particular political form, which is why I was so keen as a scientist and as a practitioner to actually write a, essentially a history book, because you can't understand the efficacy of solutions or the problems you might encounter if you don't understand water in context. And the appropriate context is the political history, not the engineering or scientific history. Looking back on politics of water and how it's interacted with technology, do you think there are the lessons for us? And what would you like people to take home from uh, reading the book? I think that to make sure people understand that water is not an issue to be delegated to some white coat sitting in a technocratic office or something. It is possibly the most political issue that we face, and it requires the engagement of citizens. It's not a consumer issue, it's a citizenship issue. People, by making choices about water, we decide what our homes look like, we decide what our economy looks like, 
and we decide what our society looks like. And so it's incredibly important that people understand the ramifications of the choices of water. In the West of the United States in particular, it's a pivotal time right now. So it's particularly important, I think, that people ask themselves, what do they want their home to look like and understand the choices in water determine the answer to that question. We were just talking with Dr. Giulio Boccoletti, the new book, Water, a Biography. Dr. Boccoletti, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.